Today, we discuss Miro. Today, I want to talk about the hellscape that is technical diagramming, right? Everybody's nodding their heads right now, uh uh-huh. And there is a potential solution that I want to share. There was one name that several people brought up. I did some digging, and it's kind of nuts how much this program Miro has for developers. I have to share this. It could potentially be a game changer for you. So my favorite part about Miro is that half the work is already done. Like right now, typically we spend hours starting diagrams from scratch, gathering information. You get buy-in from every team. Uh, You know, that's a lot of work to do. But Miro has a full set of integrations with the tools you're probably already using. And they also offer open APIs and SDKs for custom solutions for all those niche diagramming use cases we have to do, right? So the end result is the same, but it doesn't take forever. It's a massive, massive time saver. I'm transforming basic flowcharts and network architectures, and it all lives in one place. So are you using Miro? Have you used it? I want to hear. That's M-I-R-O.com. you're actually starting to see is a sign of police presence starting to ramp up on the outskirts of the of the what I would describe as the hottest zone here which is right uh, in front of the Capitol where Joe Biden will eventually possibly be sworn in as president of the United States although I don't know if you can have an event in public uh, given what's gone on here today on January 6 2021 tens of thousands descended on Washington DC to protest the results of the 2020 election after listening to then president Donald Trump tell thousands of his supporters that the election was stolen from them, protesters marched to Capitol Hill where 10,000 people took over the grounds. Over 2,000 people breached security and broke into the Capitol building, causing over two and a half million dollars in damage. We have a breach of the Capitol! Breach of the Capitol! Police were assaulted, a noose was erected, and chants to hang the vice president broke out among the crowd. According to White House aides, Trump said that the vice president deserved it. The January 6th insurrection was eventually resisted and led to over a thousand people being charged. Many news outlets have done extensive coverage of the political motivations and various militia groups that led to this historic moment in U.S. history, but few discussed the religious element that fueled it, Christian nationalism. The Christian flag was paraded, a man clutched his Bible, and a prayer thanking Jesus for allowing them to take over the Senate chambers are just a few of the many examples of Christian symbolism that was littered throughout the insurrection. Thank you, divine, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, creator God, for blessing each and every one of us here and now. Amen. Thank you, divine, creator God, for surrounding us with your divine, omnipresent, white light of love, protection, peace, and harmony. Thank you for allowing the United States of America to be reborn. Thank you for allowing us to get rid of the communists, the globalists, and the traitors within our government. We love you and we thank you. In Christ's holy name we pray. But the story goes deeper. What if I told you that there were shadow Christian networks behind the scenes that were instrumental in shaping the events that led up to January 6th? What if I told you that for some, January 6th was a physical manifestation of God battling back the demons attempting to destroy America? Three years later, Dr. Matthew Taylor joins me to reflect on the January 6th insurrection and the religious fundamentalism that fueled it all. All right, Matt, it is uh, great to get you back on the podcast and the show. Thanks for making time. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me back, Tim. Of course. This is now your third time on. I love talking to you because you're a Christian. You you gave, I'm not sure what you call it in your tradition, but you gave what I would call as a sermon uh, earlier uh, or last year, late 2023, that I loved. I thought was so good. And you specialize in tracking um, you know, Protestant movements, uh, evangelicalism, um, you, you, you talk about, um, the relationship between, um, the Christian tradition and the Islamic tradition. You're just a very, I think, brilliant person. I appreciate your perspective so much. And I'm bringing you on because you did some really amazing work in 2023 
helping people understand some of the deep, and I would argue hidden networks of evangelicalism that really gave birth to the January 6th insurrection. I'm releasing this episode on the day, the third uh, year anniversary of the insurrection. And so I wanted to bring you on and kind of talk about your research, what, what, what you found, and also why why people in media spaces are not really harping or, or emphasizing the religious element of this. I mean, certainly I saw more secular news pieces like Rolling Stone and even CNN talk about it, but I still feel like they don't really get that in so many ways, the fuel of what we're seeing is religiously motivated with a very heavy politics. So it's just good to have you. Um, I would, I want to start here. You did a, I think five part series on the straight white American Jesus podcast. It, it started, I think, December 2021 or uh, 2022. Yeah, it went into 2023. How much research did you do for that? Because I'll, I'll make sure I put a link in the show notes. It was an amazing series. It helped me understand so much. What was that like researching for that? So I, I honestly was not planning for it to be a podcast series. Um, we, we I, I was, I'm writing a book. I did write a book. It's not, it's, it's coming out now. Um, and the, the podcast series was in some ways kind of a, a first draft of my book. I, um, uh, I, I started researching basically just after January 6th, um, really trying to track down who were the leaders, who were, what were the Christian theological ideas that drove so many Christians to the Capitol um, on January 6th? And why did we see so many Christian expressions in the crowds? Um, and so I spent a couple of years really digging into that. Um, and then I think it was in the summer of 2022, um, I reached out to Brad Onishi at Straight White American Jesus um, and suggested maybe doing a series on the New Apostolic Reformation. And he was excited and on board. And we wound up deciding to make it more of a documentary format. Um, because we, we, as we started getting into it, we realized having the actual voices of these leaders, having their, having them in their own words, um, saying the things that they said would would be much more effective than me just kind of summarizing or, or, um, trying to kind of lay it out as, as a simple argument. Um, so yeah, it wound up being, um, five episodes. Um, and, uh, it was about two years worth of research that went into that about three years total that went into the book. Um, and there's quite a bit now in the book actually, that was not in the series. There's quite a bit of new material as well that, um, either I couldn't fit in charismatic revival fury or that I discovered even after charismatic revival fury aired yeah you you talk a lot about the new apostolic reformation in that series and i I, we've went into into great detail in previous episodes defining that but just for maybe any new listeners can you kind of give us the cliff notes version of what you're talking about when you when you say new apostolic reformation or the nar as it's also known by yeah so starting in really the 1950s um, you have in these non-denominational charismatic spaces. So kind of they're, 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 they're adjacent to Pentecostalism, but are not properly Pentecostal because most Pentecostals in the U.S. are denominational. So these are, these are, this is a non-denominational kind of more fuzzy space on the margins of the charismatic movement. You start to have this conversation about the renewed offices of apostles and prophets coming back to lead the church. These ideas percolate around these independent charismatic networks and circles for decades. And then in the 1990s, a um, Fuller Seminary professor named C. Peter Wagner um, hears about some of these ideas, starts meeting some of the people who are very interested in these ideas, and really embraces it. And he coins or helps to coin the term New Apostolic Reformation as a way of trying to speak about this, this transformation that he saw coming in the life of the church. Um, He was not a neutral observer. He was very excited about these ideas of renewed apostles and prophets transforming the landscape of the church, leading the global church into revival. Um, And he retires from Fuller Seminary in 1999 to start building the New Apostolic Reformation, builds a series of eight or nine different organizations and networks that he oversees until his retirement in 2010. And these networks, there there were hundreds of leaders in them, almost all of them identifying as either apostles or prophets. Um, But these New Apostolic Reformation networks became, in many ways, the, the theological backbone of Christian Trumpism. 
Um, these were some of the most ardent networks of support for Donald Trump. These were some of the first leaders to embrace and endorse Donald Trump in the 2016 campaign. And they wound up becoming key advisors to the Trump administration. And then a, a cohort of Wagner's disciples from the New Apostolic Reformation, I argue in Charismatic Revival Fury and in my book, um, were really the, the major theological architects of January 6th, both in being present that day and helping to lead the crowds, but also in the, the organization and orchestration that went on before January 6th of mobilizing and galvanizing Christians to believe Donald Trump's election lies and to feel that they needed to be there on January 6th to do spiritual warfare in order to swing the election back to Donald Trump. It's so tough to find one line of thinking to go down because there, even in that, in that you know, um, description. There's so many things I want to unpack, but I think one of them is help me understand for you and your research. When did the NAR was it always politicized from the, from the very beginning? Did it become more politicized when Trump hopped on the scene? And what was it about Trump that was so appealing? Right, because again, we say this often, but the guy wasn't uh, you know uh, a good example of of. of family values or morality and also a lot of spaces in the evangelical world they love to use the word truth right we're standing on the truth of god's word we're standing we're standing on the truth of, of insert talking point here but then they're supporting something that's so blatantly untrue with this election fraud narrative that, that led to january 6th so was this was this an evolution over time the nar becomes more political was it always political from the beginning help me understand that I would say the NAR was always political, but it became much more political over time. Okay. Um, so if you go back, I mean, a lot of this stuff is really getting off the ground around the same time as the 2000 election. And um, in, in Peter Wagner and his, his cohort actually wrote a book um, titled Destiny of a Nation about the 2000 election and about how they believed that they, um, that God had um, God wanted George W. Bush to be president. They believed this before the election. And then as, as you had the 2000 election kind of unravel and the, the fight over hanging chads and vote counting in Florida, they believed that that also was a context for spiritual warfare. Um, and that they, they believed that through their prophecies and through their spiritual warfare acts, they actually swung that, that indecisive season the, the way of George W. Bush and that they helped get him elected. Mm. But all of that was going on very much on the margins. I mean, these, these people were, were very much seen as fringe um, in 2000 um, mm. and, and, and were not kind of tied into any sort of deep Republican Party politics, as far as I can tell. Um, what happens over time, though, um, and a big part of this is um, in 2001, Peter Wagner meets Lance Wallnow. And Wallnow in 2000 was, had first started to articulate his idea of the seven mountains or the seven mountain mandate, yes. this idea that Christians need to take over um, the, the major spheres of influence in society. Hi, I'm Lance Wallnow. I want to talk to you for a moment about this concept called the 7M mandate. In reality, it started with a conversation I had in the year 2000. I had been talking to Lauren Cunningham, who's the founder of Youth with a Mission. And Lauren was sharing with me about a conversation he had had with Bill Bright. The two of them were visited, actually, by the Lord within the same 24 hours. And God spoke to them and said they had a message to give the other man. And the message was that there are seven molders of culture, or seven world kingdoms, and that he who could take those kingdoms could take the harvest of nations. Now, this illustration is the way I see it. I look at it this way. I see those seven molders of culture as being the religion mountain as a metaphor for something you've got to take or climb. Uh, then we have education, we could say, family. These are in no particular order of importance. They all represent the forces that shape societies and nations. Government, media, art, which is the entertainment mountain, and uh, business, which is where we have the economics mountain happening also. Now, these seven fields of influence are very powerful, so powerful, in fact, that he who occupies the top of those mountains can literally shape the agenda that, that forms nations. Friends of mine in the organization I'm a part of called Global Priorities have been able to transform prison systems from Colombia to the Supreme Court in Guatemala to working with the FBI right now in Mexico. And what they do is they put biblical foundations. 
underneath those mountains. You see, if you're going to have democracy, my friend, it doesn't come about because you've got a smarter economic idea. Contrary to what a lot of liberal-leaning economists in the United States want us to think about, you actually have to realize that where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And if you want to see freedom economically or freedom culturally or freedom politically, you have to honor God because Satan, with his powers in second heaven, is just waiting for democracies to fail so that he can raise up totalitarian, popular movements that are going to be speaking for the frustration of the masses. Because you know what the problem is? The elites that are at the top of these mountains right now are selfish. Um, again, that, that idea has deeper roots as well, but Walnow is the one who really puts this mountain imagery together with these ideas of kind of dividing up society in these different ways. And, and, and Wagner and Walnow begin to collaborate. And Walnow, even though he wasn't part of some of the original cohort of NAR leaders, Wagner kind of draws him in to the inner circle over the mm. starting in 2001. And by 2007, um, these ideas have become very integrated into the way the NAR talks and thinks about itself to the point where um, Seven Mountains becomes the under underlying political theology of, um, of the NAR networks. Um, and, and Wagner really trumpets this stuff. And they, there's, there's a, about a dozen books published by NAR leaders that all come out um, in this 18-month span for, in 2007 and 2008, including Wagner's um, most infamous book, Dominion, uh, exclamation point, where he really lays out the connections between Dominion theology. First of all, I want to point out these two words, dominion and mandate. The word mandate, you've got to understand, mandate means an authoritative order or command. It doesn't mean a good idea. It doesn't mean a suggestion. It means an authoritative order. Dominion has to do with control. Dominion has to do with rulership. Dominion has to do with authority and subduing. And it relates to society. The, one of the last things that Eleanor danced to uh, were the words, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, what is talked about, what, what, what the values are in heaven need to be made manifest here on earth. Dominion means being the head and not the tail. Dominion means ruling as kings. It says in Revelation chapter 1, 6, that he has made us kings and priests. And check the rest of that verse. It says for dominion. So we are kings for dominion. Now the dominion mandate is another phrase for the Great Commission. And we're, we're, most of us are more familiar with the term Great Commission, uh, but now we've got to understand that dominion mandate is is another way of saying the Great Commission, because when Jesus sent his disciples out, he said he told them to go and make disciples of all nations. Now get that idea, make disciples of what? All nations. It doesn't say in this point, doesn't other places, doesn't say at that scripture to make disciples of individuals out there. It says make disciples of whole nations. Those are whole groups of society. In other words, it's talking about transforming societies which he's blending with the seven mountains, blending with these spiritual warfare ideas, blending with the apostolic prophetic ideas and late saying, this is the NAR program. And it's after that. And, and this again, corresponds quite a bit with the 2008 election, right? So these folks are very focused on presidential elections. And in fact, and I get into this a little bit in charismatic revival theory, Sarah Palin grew up mm. in an NAR church. Wow. One of the, one of the, what she, she came <laughs> okay. up, she, she grew up in, a, in an assemblies of God, Church, yeah. Wasilla Assemblies of God, but but it was it was very tied into these NAR networks, and she had some of these NAR leaders coming and speaking at her church, prophesying. In fact, there was an NAR prophet named Mary Glazier, who was the pastor um, that was was Sarah Palin's personal pastor, and and even um, claimed to help instigate her to go into politics. So part of this mm. this political politicization, this increased politicization of the NAR, is is their recognition that they have an opportunity in the person of Sarah Palin, as she's elevated in the 2008 election, right. they think that God is opening a door for them in the Republican party. And they, they become very much ensconced in these networks, but nobody really excites them that much after Sarah Palin until Donald Trump pops on the scene in 2015, as you were pointing to. And they very, very early on, I mean, this was, this was, if you remember the 2016 Republican primary, there were like 17 candidates, right? And many of them were overtly evangelical. Right, Marco Definitely. Rubio, Ben Carson, yes, uh, Ted yes. Cruz, mm -hmm. and 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 so 
but but from a very early moment, starting really in the fall of 2015, just a few months after Trump enters the race, you start to see these independent charismatic and especially these NAR leaders embracing Trump and pointing to him and saying there's something special about Donald Trump. And Lance Walno again was at the very center of that that mobilization. He was was in meetings with Trump in the fall of 2015 with some other religious leaders. And this is where he begins to talk about Donald Trump is a Cyrus. Donald Trump is anointed mm. by God to be this sort of messianic leader, right? Walnow compared Trump to the Persian King Cyrus cited in the Bible. Cyrus decreed the Jews living in captivity in ancient Babylon could return to Israel and rebuild their temple. I went to hear Donald Trump in 2015. Uh-huh. And, uh, when I came home, I distinctly heard, and I'm not one of those people that's always hearing God's voice, so it stuck out to me. I heard the Lord say, Isaiah 45 will be the 45th president. I read on in this 45th chapter, it says, Isaiah says, though you have not known me, I have anointed you for Israel's sake. Mm -hmm. And when I saw that though you have not known me, I circled it and I said, my God, this is crazy theology. God's bringing in a heathen ruler mm -hmm. with his anointing, who doesn't yet know him, but God's hand is on him. And yeah. then I read on, verily thou art a God that hides thyself. Mm -hmm. And I said, dear God, you have hidden this, <laughs> you have hidden your hand in this unusual man. Because Cyrus, if, if you go back in your um, Hebrew Bible, Cyrus is the, the Persian emperor who conquers the Babylonians and then returns the Jewish leaders from exile in Babylon to go and rebuild Jerusalem. And so Wall now begins using this prophetic allegory in the fall of 2015, saying Donald Trump is a Cyrus. God has told me Donald Trump is a Cyrus, and it really becomes one of the key mobilizations and motivations that Christians articulate for supporting Donald Trump. He might not be a good Christian. He might be this pagan warrior king who beats up on everyone, but mm -hmm. he'll be our pagan warrior king, who God has anointed as a, as, a, as a political messiah for us. So it's interesting because it sounds like what you're saying is that through these very small wins that the NAR had very early on, they took it as a sign that God was with them in fulfilling maybe the prophecies that they were receiving that eventually led up to write this uh, Lance Wallnew figure saying, hey, I think Trump's a modern day Cyrus. And then, of course, we all know Trump gets elected, which probably only reinforces that, oh, look, God is speaking to us. We are on God's side. What's interesting here, too, to mention to the audience is that the Seven Mountain Mandate is uh, now a staple idea in the um, Turning Point USA. I call them far right uh, movement. In fact, in, in part of my recap, uh, when I went to America Fest a couple of weeks ago, I have clips in that recap of, of Rob McCoy talking about the seven mountains of influence, right? So it's interesting to see something that started out as really on the fringe, fringe, fringe of evangelicalism. First, they're charismatic. Then they're into this, you know, new apostolic movement. And it's, it's very heavy on the charismatic side, even for the average charismatic. And that also includes politically. And now here we are, what, two decades later. And it sounds like what you're saying is that is that they're a major component of what has led to things like the uh, January 6th insurrection and this overwhelming support for Trump. Yeah, there, there's a really interesting quote um, from George W. Bush's chief of staff, Andy Card, that he gave right after the, the 2016 election. He was giving an interview and and he said, you know, the the Republican Party used to have a lot of carpet and a little bit of fringe and a lot of rug and a little bit of fringe. And now it's a lot of fringe and a little bit of rug mm. or the way that I would put it, riffing on Andy Card, is what happens both in the Christian community and in the Republican Party is through the 2016 campaign and then the election of Donald Trump and, and, and his administration, the fringe became the carpet, hmm. right? The things that the, – these groups that, that would have been laughed out of respectable Republican circles, these, group, these groups and leaders who have been laughed out of even respectable religious right circles – in 2014, by early 2017, are suddenly at the center of all the action. Mm. And this leads to an inversion in how power works in the religious right, in the leadership of the religious right. And suddenly you have ideas like the Seven Mountain Mandate that really had been existing more on this in the kind of charismatic fringe um, becoming central 
to Republican organizing, to right-wing Christian thought, to political theology for the religious right. Um, and you have these leaders like Lance Wall now, but now there's hundreds of these independent charismatic leaders. And I'm sure you saw a whole handful of them at, at America Fest. These, these folks, again, mostly non-denominational, some of them identifying as, uh, as apostles, prophets, some of them identifying as revivalists, some of them just identifying as worship leaders, but who are all entrepreneurial and who see this opportunity in Republican politics for them to use these skills that they have developed in cultivating charismatic spirituality, but now being used towards cultivating Christian nationalism and cultivating mm. a kind of right-wing Christian identity that is, sees itself very much in opposition to broader American culture. Yeah. So let's talk about, about January 6th. You know, that was a day that um, I was pretty new to even starting this kind of work. I just started to hear whispers about this term Christian nationalism. And here I am watching this thing happened at the uh, think this thing happened at the Capitol building. And I see a Christian flag swinging around. I see a prayer to Jesus. I see Bibles. I went, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that this is actually happening. But it turns out there was a lot happening before that that really led up to, I think, what happened on January 6th with groups, NAR including, uh, included, um, doing prayer rallies and Stop the Steal rallies and the Jericho March with folks like Eric Metaxas and Alex Jones there. Talk to me about, about what was happening behind the scenes in some of these, I would call them almost shadow networks, right? Like they don't maybe want to be recognized super publicly, just in their own spheres. What was going on behind the scenes that was leading up to what happened on January 6th? Let me, let me actually start a year earlier. Um, okay. So um, in, in 2019, Paula White Kane, um, who has been Donald Trump's uh, personal pastor and closest spiritual advisor for over 20 years now, um, she um, was already very important to the Trump administration. But in the fall of 2019, Paula White Kane was given a, a White House office and an official role in the office of liaison. And um, she became um, an, an official White House staffer. And just after that, like within a day or two after she takes on that role, she announced the launch of a new prayer movement called the One Voice Prayer Movement. And this, this One Voice Prayer Movement was inspired by prophecies that she received from NAR prophets um, who um, were, were meeting with her that summer. And it was led and staffed by NAR leaders like Dutch Sheets and Cindy Jacobs and John and Jillian Hamill and James Gall. And they gathered at the White House in November of 2019 to launch this prayer movement that was ostensibly nonpartisan. It was ostensibly just about praying for America. And yet, if you look at the people who are involved in this thing, they're, they're all Trump supporters. It's all very right-wing. And so you have a prayer movement being led by a, a clergy person, a televangelist, who is also a White House staffer. Hmm. Right. And this is all being done very publicly. And so you you have this this galvanization and, 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 and a lot of the rhetoric around the one voice prayer movement was very much about spiritual warfare and about defending Donald Trump. And so it functions as a sort of 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 subsidiary of the Trump 2020 campaign, mobilizing spiritual warfare and prayer for Donald Trump in these right wing Christian circles. So there's there's all this energy that is building and building and building up to the 2020 election. And of course, you have COVID, you have so many things going on, the Black Lives Matter protests after George Floyd's murder, right? It's, it's a very chaotic season. But one of the underlying threads throughout 2020 was this spiritual warfare mobilization, right? Sean Foyt is running his Let Us Worship thing starting that yes. summer. This kind of warfare mobilization that is also about right-wing politics. When Donald Trump refuses to concede the 2020 election, these spiritual warfare networks, many of them superintended by NAR leaders, throw themselves into high gear. And Flashpoint, the show on Kenneth Copeland's Victory Channel Network, launched just a few weeks before the 2020 election. And I actually had um, a reporter who was looking into it share some, some, some numbers with me. And it showed uh, up until Flashpoint launches, this Victory Channel Network had virtually zero presence on YouTube. They, they just they didn't have any 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 YouTube presence, and then they started posting these flashpoint videos on YouTube, and in like it start I think it launches at the very end of September of 2020, and it's like maybe 15,000 views in September, and then it jumps to like 300,000 next month, and then to six million the next month, and by January 2021 they have 30 million people 
watching these videos on Flashpoint on YouTube, right? So you you have, and, and that's just one side of this. Jericho marches was another part of this that was not originally organized by NAR leaders, but NAR leaders were at the heart of, of leading a lot of the Jericho marches, including the major Jericho march, which was December 12th, 2020 in Washington, mm-hmm. D.C. But there were a number of Jericho marches going on in, in the swing state capitals and the contested state capitals, often led by local NAR leaders. Um, you had Dutch Sheets, who, again, was one of these people who was helping to lead this one voice prayer movement. After the 2020 election, he goes to Washington, D.C., and meets with people in the Trump administration. He's very coy about never mentioning who exactly it was, but he says they were in the Trump administration. And they say, why don't you go to all the swing states and lead a um, prayer and spiritual warfare and prophecy campaign in the swing states as you have these legal battles playing out about the 2020 election? And Dutch Sheets does this. And you have hundreds of thousands of people watching these events. This is in the middle of COVID. And you have people gathering in these they go to every one of the swing states. Some of them they go to twice. He takes mm-hmm. a group of 15 to 20 of these apostles and prophets. And they some of the rhetoric that comes out of these prophecies in these swing states that, again, are being watched by hundreds of thousands of people on Facebook and on YouTube is incredibly violent. They're talking about beheading their enemies. Sometimes they'll say that's spiritual, right? They're talking about uh, God intervening and destroying their enemies. And they're talking about militias and mobilizing spiritual mm-hmm. militias. And so that all of this is building and building and building up towards January 6th. These are the, the vectors and the networks of mobilization that are galvanizing people to show up on January 6th. But for most of us, we, are, we weren't paying attention to that because we don't exist in the charismatic social media or media space. Right. If you had, if you were watching Charisma News, if you were listening to these podcasts, it would have you would have been completely bought into all this stuff and understanding exactly what's going on. For everyone else, it just felt fringy, right? And then all of a sudden, on January sixth, suddenly you have all these manifestations of spiritual warfare, people blowing shofars just the way they had at these Jericho marches, of people um, praying and praying in tongues, right? All these mobilizations and 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 manifestations of charismatic spirituality that are all on display around the Capitol, right? Including some of the same leaders who've been speaking at that point for months about the need to support Donald Trump's election lies, right? So that's the backstory to January 6th, right? It's not just what you see that day. It's it's the, 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 the pathways that are being carved, the theological pathways, the rhetorical pathways, the political pathways that are being carved by these leaders guiding people to that day. And I'll just mm. just make one last point, and then uh, please do. Um, so one of the major signs of this that um, I think has been been severely misunderstood is if you look in the crowds on January sixth, if you look at the photos, if you look at the videos of that day, not just the news photos, but go and look at the social media photos, right? Because part of the problem with January sixth is. It's a panopticon, right? You just have you have all these social media pe- people posting all these videos. They're, yeah. they're, they're, you don't have any objective kind of third-party footage of that day. But if you go into those databases, you find so many of these appeal to heaven flags. It's a white flag with a green pine tree at the center and the phrase "an appeal to heaven" across the top. And 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 a number of sources have no- noted how many of these flags were there. There were at least dozens. Again, it's very hard to get a count because everything's moving around. There's so many different videos. I'd estimate there's dozens, maybe hundreds of these appeal to heaven flags all over the place around the Capitol riot. Well, what is the appeal to heaven flag? Well, if you go back in history, it was a, a Revolutionary War flag that was commissioned by George Washington and was flew over the Massachusetts Navy. So you'll occasionally see it in reenactments of the Revolutionary War. But it was not widely popular or all that well known until 2013, when Dutch Sheets is given an appeal to heaven flag in a, in, in a, in a graduation ceremony. And he comes to believe that this is the prophetic symbol for the spiritual warfare campaign that needs to be done to restore American destiny and to recapture America. And so he starts popularizing. He writes an entire book about the appeal to heaven flag. Multiple other people write books about this, inspired by Dutch Sheets. And he starts encouraging his NAR networks to spread this meme of this appeal to heaven flag. And starting in 2015, it begins to pop up in state state legislatures, having it flying it over state capitals, in, in state 
um, representatives flying it in their offices. And so it becomes this coded symbol for right-wing Christian mobilization around this spiritual warfare campaign, and it becomes very tied to Donald Trump. And then you see dozens, maybe hundreds of these flags showing up on January 6th, with Dutch Sheets being one of the main people driving people to that day. And I even, in, in Charismatic Revival Fury, have the audio of the conference call that Dutch Sheets is on during the Capitol riot with 4,000 other people doing spiritual warfare. And this call starts out with one of Sheets' disciples saying, we see the appeal to heaven flag flying in Washington, D.C. today, and we know that that is the sign of our national deliverance. Hmm. Right? They know that they mobilized and motivated those people to be there. It's their symbolism that is being invoked. And they see that as consonant with the movement and, and the ways that they are trying to operate in American politics. This is the side of really all of this, the, the, the far right move, the Christian nationalist movement, the love for Trump that really, I think goes underreported uh, when it comes to more mainstream media sources, um, because I respect the work that a lot of them do. I think it's important that we understand the political elements and, and some of the uh, militia groups that are a part of this, but they don't, I don't think that they really capture the religious fervor that really underpins so much of this like what you just described right like behind the scenes for over a year there were people motivated by this belief that they are called to take dominion over the seven spheres of influence that that and that god has given them that power there were groups like that working behind the scenes pushing and being in lockstep with whatever trump said to maintain his presidency for the sake of restoring america back to god which is a very ambiguous term that can mean anything to anyone and it and i think people don't recognize or they really underestimate the religiosity of the event that was there i mean some people will will will, will note yeah we had bibles and there were jesus flags but but i've noticed that at least in my tradition um before i kind of started doing this work full time people were really quick to underestimate that and write it off you know as oh well this is not the typical christian um take or at least the typical evangelical take right i mean and to their to their point there are some people like robert jeffries who who condemned the violence of that day etc what do you say to people and i'm thinking about the people that you and i see on twitter a lot or people that you and i engage with sometimes and they just go you're really making a mountain out of a molehill uh matt um, thanks for doing the research but this is just kind of one fringe group not everyone's a, uh, a charismatic not everyone in the evangelical movement is nar maybe they're more conservative but they're certainly not this far right what do you say to that it's 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 nice to be posed the question so forthrightly um so i i because I, I do get this response quite a bit of okay fine there, there were some christian leaders who were there so what right yeah right, exactly and and the, the the challenge is to recognize that um i i grew up evangelical i grew up in a semi-charismatic world I, I my family bounced around in a bunch of different churches i i went to christian elementary and middle school and high school evangelical christian schools i i grew up in um, an environment that was oxygenated with what we would today call Christian nationalism and was taught that growing up. But I have to say, and I, and, and I spent the first 30 years of my life as an evangelical. I, I did ministry as an evangelical. Um, I, did, I went to an evangelical seminary. So I, I have a pretty wide experience of evangelicalism in, in a variety of different forms. I never saw the type of rhetoric, the type of violent ideation, the type of radical politics in any of the circles that I was around growing up that we have seen mobilized in the last decade. And where is that coming from? Where is this surge in Christian nationalism coming from? Yeah. Right? This, is, this is in some ways the driving question of religion in America right now. Where is all of this anger, this hostility, this violent rhetoric, this, these ideas of spiritual warfare, where is all of this coming from, right? And part of what I'm trying to tell the story of in Charismatic Revival Fury and in, in my book is it, it, it is an evangelical issue, but it's coming out of this one particular sector 
or a lot of it is coming out of this one particular sector of American evangelicalism, this highly radicalized, independent, charismatic sector of American evangelicalism. But it has not stayed in that sector. And this is the shift that has gone on in the religious right, is that the, as those leaders from these independent, charismatic networks have entered into the right-wing leadership circles, as they've entered into the, the leadership core of the religious right, they have dragged the religious right in their direction. They, they have shifted the way that the religious right in America talks. These are leaders who 20 years ago would have been laughed out of the room in a lot of these respectable Jerry Falwell type circles. And now they are at the center of the action at places like Turning Point USA. Mm -hmm. And the spirituality that drove January 6th, the spirituality of shofars and spiritual warfare and decreeing and declaring blessings and curses and, and territorial spirits and of high octane charismatic worship music and charismatic worship experiences that are leveraged to right wing ends. All of that has become far more normative since January 6th in the right wing circles in America. Hmm. And so you have, and, and, and we see this, this earlier in 2023, and it's happening again in 2024, the, some of these NAR leaders created an alternative prayer breakfast. They didn't call it a prayer breakfast because they didn't serve any food, but it's happening on the same day as the prayer breakfast at the yep. Museum of the Bible. And in 2023, the first time they did this, if you go back and look at the video, they are literally recreating in a liturgical way, January 6th. They have one of the NAR worship leaders, Alma Rivera, who was there at the Capitol leading worship with Cindy Jacobs and doing the spiritual warfare over the Capitol. She is the one who is tapped to lead worship at this event at the Museum of the Bible. We're within our nation because we are watchful and praying in intercession in Jesus' name. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Let us praise. And there are many, many Congress people, Kevin McCarthy and other leaders in Congress who help participate in this event. They are blowing shofars. They have some of the same speakers from the Jericho March speaking at this congressional prayer gathering. And do you know who was the inspiration behind that prayer gathering? Do you know who gave the idea for it? Can I guess? Go for it. Mike Johnson. Bing, 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 bing. Yes. As well. And I'm going to ask Congressman Mike Johnson, who helped Jim and I organize this event to come. And Mike and I have known each other for a very long time. And uh, it's his heart to pray over his colleagues. I'm going to ask him to pray, and then I'm going to. We lift them all before you today, Lord. And we pray that you give us your wisdom, your discernment, your stamina, your guidance, and your protection. And you remind us of what your word tells us so clearly in Philippians 4. With you, we can do all things. And in John 15, you remind us without you, we can do no thing. And this was Bingo. before he was the Speaker of the House. This was when he was kind of a backbencher leader in the Republican caucus. He was the one who pushed to have this event, right? And so, and now he's the Speaker of the House, yep. right? And he is it will potentially be in that position at the end of this election cycle, yep. right? And if you think about the, the chaos that we experienced in 2020, now think about how much more chaos if the Speaker of the House was pushing for all of this stuff in a full-throated way and was right. refusing to certify the election completely. Right. Right. So which, we, which by the way, for the audience, Mike Johnson led that charge in his own position in, in, in 2020. Uh, yes. he, he was one of the people saying we should not certify. This is a stolen election, something that he still maintains. So he also was someone who uh, vowed to release all of the January 6th footage. And then he made a comment. I'm not sure if this actually happened, but he hinted that what they would do is they would release all the footage, but blur out everyone's faces to protect them from criminal prosecution. I mean, think about that for a second, right? So yep. like, you're absolutely right, Matt, in saying that, again, people who don't understand this world they don't understand the gravity of someone like Mike Johnson being 
what second in command to the presidency, right? If the president and vice president are no, are, are not unable to serve, or they something tragic happens to both of them, Mike Johnson is is the guy. He's the one in charge, and he's is someone who is deeply embedded in this world. And there's been plenty of clips, and maybe I'll grab a few and put them here in the episode of Mike saying that you know this is a Moses moment that we've been appointed by God for 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 such a time. And make no mistake, the agenda is, and this is when I try and be very careful with, with my own words, it's not a conservative agenda. It is a far-right agenda. There's a massive difference. Chris Christie is a conservative who recognizes that that queer people deserve equal rights under the law, that trans health care should be a thing, etc. But he's so conservative on, on issues like immigration, etc. This is a whole different ballgame of people who are advocating for abolitionist type of, of, of anti-abortion measures, which would, in theory, if they were allowed to do what they wanted, criminalize women and doctors who either get an abortion or perform an abortion. We're talking about about the idea of of making sure that queer folks are literally second class citizens because you know it's just so unbiblical and ungodly. It is very much a a system ruled by a very narrow, specific fundamentalist interpretation of the Bible that then has to get mapped onto everyone else. And that's a very important piece to recognize here. And and let me just add two pieces to amplify the point you were just making. Please. Mike Johnson who is Southern Baptist from Louisiana, has, has for a long time been had a very close friend and close associate named Timothy Carskaden, who's a pastor in Shreveport in Mike Johnson's district. But Timothy Carskaden isn't just a pastor. He's an apostle. Mm. And he is a disciple of Dutch Sheets. And he has been a close associate of Mike Johnson's for a number of years, and even was invited by Mike Johnson to come to Washington, D.C. and spend time with him in Washington, D.C. And most Congress people fl have flags outside of their offices. Yep. It's usually their state flag, sometimes an American flag, and sometimes a third flag. Guess what one of the flags flying outside Mike Johnson's office even today is? Let me guess. It's the appeal to heaven. You got it. Man. Spot on. And when, when Bradley Onishi and I wrote this up in Rolling Stone in November... And we reached out through Rolling Stone to Mike Johnson's office. And he said, oh, well, we just got that flag from such and such a pastor. And we went and looked up that pastor. He's an NAR pastor. Yeah. Right? So, I'm, again, I'm not saying that, oh, Mike Johnson's part of the NAR. No, he's a Southern Baptist. But he's hanging out with these very leaders and with these yes. very and, – and, 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 and soaking in these same ideas. He spoke – in, in um, early December at this gathering, the National Association of Christian Lawmakers, again, at the Museum of the Bible. And the guy who leads that is another disciple of Dutch Sheets. And the National Association of Christian Lawmakers has been one of the major vehicles. It was founded in 2019. It's been one of the major vehicles since then for popularizing this appeal to heaven flag and encouraging Christian lawmakers to fly the appeal to heaven flag, either on their desk or to push for it to be flown in state capitol buildings. Yeah. So 
the the idea that this stuff oh this is all fringy this is all far off no 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 this is deeply deeply integrated into the very lifeblood of the Republican Party and of Republican politics today. Yep. And the, the the activist networks that you see at TPUSA, the networks of churches that were sending people to January 6th are the same churches that these Republican politicians go to and fundraise at and, and campaign at and, and, and go and galvanize their followers at, right? So what the, the religious right of 20 years ago is gone. And what we see today is a much more radicalized, much more charismatic, much more fixated on dominion in the seven mountains mobilization in the religious right that is extremely anti-democratic and that is very, very dangerous as we enter into another presidential election. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I really recommend people watching this to check out my, <clears throat> excuse me, my, my turning point um, recap because I really spent uh, two full days there. This is my second year there. I'm actually pretty embedded in these spaces. These, these folks will talk to me. I've talked to Rob McCoy. I've talked to people like that. We've had conversations. And I really want to emphasize your point. I, I think what makes me the most frustrated when I hear people really dismiss this as fringe um, is two things. Number one, um, well, I they were so fringe that they almost overturned our election process for the first time in U.S. history. Let's just start there. So even if they were fringe, they're incredibly powerful regarding what they're able to do. But number two, and this is, I think, what makes the evangelical term and networks so powerful is that they're so hard to treat as a monolith, but they're all networked together, right? It's like looking at a big bowl of spaghetti. All the strands touch each other in all different kinds of ways. And groups like Turning Point, um, uh, Turning Point USA, um, even groups like PragerU, they're doing a really good job of building out new structures that for evangelicals, ecumenical people can sit underneath because I'm watching people like William Wolf, who is more part of the Doug Wilson, uh, almost RJ Rush Dooney reform tradition, right? Go to events like Turning Point USA, where someone like Sean Foyt is, is promoted there, or more of these NAR people are. And make no mistake, theologically, they have pretty strong disagreements on women in leadership, on, on, on the gifts of the spirit, etc. But they're united under this umbrella of these far-right politics, right? And so whether we like it or not, I think that American evangelicalism, especially the white flavor of it, needs to do a good hard look in the mirror and recognize that they are they have become the highways that these cars travel down, right? Like what has made this able to, what has what has made groups like Flashpoint or or or, or um shows like Flashpoint so successful is that they already have a built-in audience of Christians who know the language, who know who who know how to view this stuff, who have a baseline. And so they use that highway to disseminate these far-right points. And I'm with you, and I, I would like your thoughts on this as we kind of wrap up. And by the way, Matt, thanks for making time while you have COVID. I really appreciate that. I, if people have, are watching this on YouTube, you see him coughing up a lung over there. The poor guy is sick and still came on the show. So thanks for making time. But regarding 2024, right, it's an election year coming up. I only see these movements becoming even more radicalized. I'm now watching them spout off the great replacement theory uh, uh, propaganda that literally David Duke from the KKK espouses. And I, again, watch my recap video, all the data is there. What do you think is going to happen this year? And what should we be looking out for when it comes to this NAR Christian nationalist movement? Well, on, on COVID, let me just say that I, I'm, I'm fortunate enough. This is actually the first time I've had COVID in four years, and I'm all boosted and everything. So I, I it, it's it's like a mild cold. But okay, thank you for okay. your concern. Um, and um, so as as we as we get into 2024, as we look at these these folks, I think there's a real reckoning that needs to happen yeah. among American evangelicals. And and part of the tragedy of January 6th is I think in many ways, January 6th could have been the wake-up call. It could have been the moment for introspection in American evangelicalism, for a, a moment where, where there really was a, a, a sense of, of pause. And, and, and of see, when you see evangelical spirituality, evangelical-style biblical citation, evangelical worship music, evangelical symbolism and shibboleths invoked in the middle of an insurrection and a riot that is violent, that would be a great moment for evangelicals to stop and say, where did we go wrong? Yep. Instead, what you saw 
was people patrolling their own fences and saying, oh, well, those weren't my kind of evangelicals. Yeah. Oh, those, those weren't the good evangelicals. The National Association of Evangelicals, after January 6th, put out a statement in which they seemingly acknowledged that there were some evangelical people and ideas that were present in the riot. And then they made the, the statement, but evangelicals believe in truth. And because it was lies that fueled January 6th, that couldn't have been, they don't say this quite overtly, but it's the, the implication, those must not have been good evangelicals mm. who did that. And then there's this disavowal. Well, it wasn't, there, it was, it wasn't evangelical leaders. The, the NAR leaders are evangelical leaders. Their influence is in broader evangelicalism. And part of what has happened as you had a lot of evangelical leaders, mainstream evangelical leaders, take a back seat, is that people like Lance Wallnow have surged to the forefront. Yeah. People like Charlie Kirk have surged to the forefront. I make the argument in my book that Lance Wallnow is the most influential evangelical political theologian of the 21st century so far. But he's not showing up at the Evangelical Theological Society, right? He's not written about in Christianity Today. Right. And yet his ideas are being parroted by millions and millions of Americans. And even they, they even reach beyond the boundaries of the United States. These ideas of seven mountains are spreading around the world, right? And so a, a colleague and friend of mine, Paul Jupe, who's a sociologist of religion, did a survey in March of 2023, and he specifically asked, this was a survey of all Americans, and he asked a, a question about the Seven Mountains, and he phrased it very specifically. Remember, this is an idea that Lance Walner coined in the year 2000. And Paul Jupe asked the question, do you agree that Christians should sit atop the mountains of influence in society, the Seven Mountains of influence in society, right? A phrase that did not exist 25 years ago. 100%. More than more than 20% of Americans agreed or strongly agreed with that statement. That is the reach of these ideas. And if you think about the impact that 20% of Americans have when they are all marching together in Republican primaries, when they are all marching together in voting for Republican politicians. And then when you think about all the people who might be kind of neutral to that idea, but are not hostile to it and are willing to vote for people who endorse it, Right, that is the pathway to autocracy. Yeah, that's the pathway to authoritarianism. And part of the real challenge of our time is that so many evangelicals have become deeply comfortable with authoritarianism. Yeah, and they believe a lot of lies, a lot of threats. That that they 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 believe somehow that evangelicalism is existentially threatened in the United States, even though. It makes up a solid at least 20%, maybe 25, 30% of Americans are identifying still as evangelical. Yeah. They believe that they are disempowered. Even when their people are in control of the Supreme Court, their people are in control of Congress. Even, even when they they are are hold the catbird seat in, in one of the major political, one of the two major political parties in our country. And yet they have this, these narratives of persecution these narratives of embattledness and these narratives now that is that, that I'm familiar with growing up, the narratives of persecution and embattledness. I, I, I grew up with that feeling like, Oh, even though I'm a white Christian, somehow I'm in the outs in America, which is absurd, but right. that, that has been a longstanding evangelical trope. But what's new is the aggression is the idea that because we are embattled, we need to take back America. Yeah. Right. And, and this idea that we need, we, we are commissioned by God, we are mandated by God to take over society and rule in God's stead. Yeah. And that is a very, very dangerous theological outlook. Because at some point, you can't have democracy and believe that. I agree. Because yeah. democracy means the people govern. And right. there's, there's a basic humanism to democracy, not humanism in some secular hegemonic sense, but just, just the idea that it, it, democracy occurs among human beings who have right. different values and different beliefs. And democracy is the system that we have for negotiating those differences and finding some way to live together in society. Yeah. But if you believe that politics is about spiritual warfare, if you believe that politics is about conquering the seven mountains, if you believe politics is about enacting the prophetic destiny of America, well, then 
democracy is an inconvenience at best and maybe a threat. Hmm. And so a lot of these the, the, these sentiments that we find growing, especially in evangelical right-wing circles, but you find this amongst conservative Catholics and right-wing Catholics, you find this amongst right-wing Latter-day Saints, right? And and this is this is not only charismatic. This is you find this in reform circles, you find this in Baptist circles, is this newfound aggression, this 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 an, antithetical opposition to American culture and the sense that Christians need to battle against the rest of society that that is very dangerous and that is what gave us donald trump in 2016 that is what nearly gave us donald trump in 2020 and i deeply deeply worry that that polarized aggressive rhetoric that that same set of violent ideas and violent ideations could lead to very real political violence in 2024 and I'm, I'm, I'm very deeply concerned about where we will be a year from now. Will we be in the midst of another con constitutional crisis with Donald Trump contesting the results of the election? Or maybe Donald Trump will be declared the winner and Democrats will be contesting the, the, the election, right? And you can have these moments that, that spiral out of control in a democracy. And we nearly had that in 2020 and early 2021. And I'm very worried that we're going to be seeing something similar a year from now. Yeah, I, I very much share your concern, um, 100%. Um, and it is, when you really think about it, it's shocking to see how far and how normalized such extreme behavior has become. I mean, even the militia group conversation, uh, groups like the Oath Keepers or Proud Boys, who knew who they were until the past couple of years? Right now, they're almost a household name because it turns out a lot of them were, were also behind um, January 6th. And think about all of the data, the, the countless hours of witness testimony, the congressional hearings, all of the hours of footage that were taken by reporters and cell phones the day of. There is nothing to celebrate here. But because of how I, maybe just human nature works, it's become mythologized. I mean, no lie, Matt. I, at Turning Point USA, um, at America Fest, in their sponsor hall, they had a booth dedicated to freeing the January 6th prisoners. You could buy a book that said the American Gulag Chronicles on it. This is how they're, they're, they're reinventing, right, the myth of what actually happened to become this thing that now, the, you know, Biden's DOJ is now targeting these patriots. Patriots who violently tried to overthrow our election process based on a lie? No. Patriots who were trying to defend their country. Like, the word gets completely turned around. So, I, I, I definitely share your sentiments. I, I'm, I'm concerned about the election in 2024. I think it's so important that Christians like ourselves and others out there are louder than ever saying, um, no, there's a better way forward in the Christian tradition. And it is certainly not this authoritarian, anti-democratic, um, you know, uh, do as I say, not as I do type of theology mixed in with some really far-right politics. It's ugly for everyone, uh, frankly. So I also want to highlight um, your book called The Violent Take It By Force, The Christian Movement That Is Threatening Our Democracy. It comes out at the end of this year. I can't wait to read it. And of course, here is the documentary that you are showing at the Institute for Islamic Christian Jewish Studies, Spiritual Warriors Decoding Christian Nationalism at the Capitol. I cannot wait for this to come out. I'm looking forward to seeing it. You said you're going to do a live screening of this at the end of this month, and then eventually will, 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 will it hit YouTube or hit Netflix or something? I mean, where's it going to go from there? Yeah, so it's about a 25-minute documentary. Um, people who have listened to Charismatic Revival Fury will find a lot in there that feels very similar to Charismatic Revival Fury, but we, we wound up getting a lot of the video footage. So you, if you've listened to Charismatic Revival Fury, you've heard some of the audio, but I think there, there's something more powerful about seeing the video imagery yeah. of this stuff, um, seeing the, the faces of, of these leaders, seeing them in action on January 6th. So the, the, we're going to do a screening um, an initial screening of the, the the documentary on January 31st here in Baltimore at the Senator Theater. So if, if folks are local, we'd, we'd love to have you join us. You can sign up for that through our website icjs.org. Um, but then afterwards, we're gonna we're gonna post the the documentary on YouTube. So right. if you aren't in the area, you'll you'll have it shortly after the event. Awesome. Love it. Well, listen, I hope you feel better. Thank you for making time. I'm sure we're going to talk a lot this year as we keep tabs on Christian nationalism, how it's evolving. And again, thanks for all your work. Well, thank you, Tim. Thank you for having me. Got it.
Friends, hello. Before you stop listening to this episode, I would love your feedback on this type of format. This was something new. I threw it together. I put a lot of work into editing it. Um, If you watch this on YouTube, we have a lot of B-roll and other footage. So I'm just trying, again, I'm trying to really evolve our content. I'm trying to give you, the audience, more informed ways of seeing what's happening behind the scenes. I'm trying to give a different angle that maybe a lot of other media places are not covering. So we'd love to know, was this format engaging for you? Was it helpful? Was it a good direction to head in? Should we go back to something else? One thing I love about this audience is that you actually do respond. I got a lot of emails asking for feedback a couple of weeks ago, and that means a lot to me, and honestly, a lot of that feedback helped to shape this episode. So, we'd love to know what you think about it. Shoot me an email, podcast at thenewevangelicals.com, or info at thenewevangelicals.com, it doesn't matter to me. We'd just, we'd just love to hear your feedback. Also, if you like this kind of content, please consider supporting us financially. We are a small nonprofit organization, and your donations make this work possible. Many of you know that we are raising money for Project Amplify. We announced this late last year. We raised $54,000 so far, which is amazing, but we still have a long ways to go. And honestly, if we all chipped in, we can make the funding that we need possible. Right now, about 1% of our total audience donates to sustain the work that we do. And I'm so grateful for that. But for us to go to that next level to produce more content like this more consistently, we need to have the right people in place. That means editors and writers and producers. And so your donations make that possible. Please consider donating today and supporting the work that we are doing. All donations made in the U.S. are tax deductible. I appreciate you all so much. Talk to you all soon. 